Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. This summer, as I was on sabbatical, I was thinking of a new series that might be possible that I thought would be the the thing that I thought was the most necessary or needed for our body at this time. And I really came to the conclusion that it would be on taking on the issue of how does God really change a person? We all want to be changed. We all need to be changed. There are issues that are in our life that we struggle with and sometimes we grow weary with. And so some perspectives in that area I think would be quite helpful. So I'm going to be opening that tonight, uh, giving you some general comments. We'll get more specific in later weeks. Then next week, uh, we'll also be starting a new series on 2 Corinthians. And those will go in concert with one another for a few weeks. And uh, then I'll join in with the other guys into the book of 2 Corinthians. But tonight, we want to talk about change. You know, 200 years uh, in July... Uh, the French celebrated the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution. And there was all kinds of celebration and excitement and uh, festivities. Our president uh, went to France with uh, Mitterrand and celebrated that revolution of the freedom of man. At least that is how it was proclaimed. But as they did so, it was interesting. There was kind of a resurgence of debate seemed to surface on what the French revolution actually meant. Now there were some who felt that it was inspired by the noble ideals of man. But there are others, if you read some of the articles that were written, who were far less complimentary. And they said that the revolution was not inspired by high and noble ideals at all, but rather it was fueled by some misguided ideas about man. The great French philosopher Rousseau, whose thoughts and teachings uh, of that particular day really gave vision and inspiration to the French Revolution, he believed that if you would strip away the artificiality of the society in which he lived, if you could just take it away, the customs and the oppressive laws and mores that seemed to keep the everyday man in an oppressed position, then in his words, what would surface in, that, in the place of all that would be, and I quote, the true, childlike, and pure citizen beneath. Now that's fairly noble, isn't it? In other words, Rousseau felt like that there was an oppression. If that oppression could be removed, then the goodness of man would surface. And so his philosophy was based on the philosophical premise that man is basically good. And in Rousseau's day, all that was holding back the goodness of man was the corrupted madness of a, of a polluted, wealthy aristocracy. And people believed that and embraced that, and thus the revolution occurred. You know, I've heard that same kind of thinking even in my day. I remember in 1969, in a park in Dallas, Texas. I was out, and on that particular day, I was sharing my faith there as a student. And I got into a conversation, or maybe you'd call it a debate of sorts, with two Black Panther revolutionaries and a radical Jesuit priest. And we began to talk 
about our different philosophies about what would change America. And their philosophy was that we ought to burn it all down and scrap it and start over. And that after we did that, the goodness of man would build a better place and a better world. And I asked them how they knew that. And their premise was, is that man was basically good and we needed to take the power away from the institutions of our country at that time. And if you remember the slogan, and give the power where? Does anybody remember a 60 person? Power? Oh yeah, good. Power to the people. You know? The revolutions that were inspired by Karl Marx's theology of the goodness of the working classes as opposed to the rich bourgeoisie, that inspired millions to revolt. It resulted in millions of deaths, all on the assumption that when those revolutions had ended, that the working classes could produce an equalitarian state where every man would be equal and goods and services would be distributed equally as well. Well, look across the face of Eastern Europe and Asia. Did they do it? Could it be that even 200 years ago with Rousseau, that the mistake in these noble ideals of changing their world, that it was built on a false premise, a false presupposition, and that is that man is basically good? Is he? That's very important when we begin to talk about change. Because if man isn't, if you and I are bent towards selfishness and evil and immorality, then it causes us to have a whole different view of how we approach the world in which we live from inside this body. Now let me give you an example of that. If we view ourselves as basically good, and I know that the basic Christian doctrine is that we are not, but you know it's so easy for us, though believing that in here, to go out in our everyday interactions with one another and fall back into, hey, I've got it figured out and I'm okay. You see? When we feel like we're okay, then the problems that we face, whether it's in our job, whether it's in our marriage, whether it is in social interaction with people and friends, then when problems arise, what's my first thought? My first thought is that the problem is out there. My wife has the problem. My employer has the problem. Circumstances are the problem. But not me. And why? Because I'm a good guy. See? On the other hand, if we come to the conclusion and really believe it, that there's something wrong in here, something twisted, something skewed, something depraved, then when the problems come in my life, whether it's my marriage or whatever else, my first inclination is not to say the problems are out there, which is a much more mature perspective, by the way, but what are the problems in here? See, that's the starting place for change. We've all witnessed... Uh, or maybe most of us have witnessed, maybe some of you ladies wouldn't be interested in this, but kind of the sad account of Pete Rose, greatest baseball player in National League history. And over this summer, we've watched these courses of events 
come into Rose's life in which now he's banished from baseball for life because he is addicted to gambling. But you know what? Not in Pete Rose's mind. See, in Pete Rose's mind, from the day he was an all-star athlete in high school all the way through college, and then really the idol of thousands, maybe even millions of people, he's always been the hero. He's always been the good guy. He's always been kind of above the crowd in everything. And now that he has fallen prey to something and people are saying, hey, look at what you did and evidence continues to mount. Even to the place that maybe by this time next year he'll be in a federal prison. In Pete Rose's mind, the problem is out there. And you know why he thinks that? He thinks that because he has a problem in here. And that is he has a misplaced trust in himself. And until he comes to the conclusion that there's something wrong in here, Pete Rose will never change. And you know, until some of you come to that same conclusion, the circumstances that you always struggle with, they'll never change either. Your marriage that you fumble in, it'll never change either. Your financial situation, it'll never change either until you come to a conclusion that there is something wrong here. Now how do I know that? Because there was another philosopher of sorts who I think made a philosophic presupposition about man. It was the Apostle Paul. Look over in Romans chapter 3. And let's see what he has to say about us. Now these are not just Paul's words, though he uses it in his argument here in the book of Romans. It's also David's words. These are quotations from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. But notice what he says starting in verse 10 of chapter 3. There is none righteous. Oh, come on. There's got to be at least one. No, there's not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is, not, there is none who does good. There is not even one. Now that's not a very pretty picture of humanity, I know. But that's not really the point that we're addressing here this evening. The question I would ask is, is it an accurate picture of humanity? And is this even true still of me, even now that I st I'm a Christian and dwelt with the Holy Spirit? Are these characteristics in part still true of me? If so, they bring great weight on the issue of change. And let me tell you why. Because when I struggle with circumstances, when issues come into my life, when I'm dealing with problems, when there are habits that plague me, I'm not going to say that I'm the good guy and the problem's out there. And you know why? Because I'm going to realize that I need help in here. That there's some problems in here. And that what I feel on a particular situation is not necessarily right. It's not, in fact, I might, even not, I might not even be naturally right. You know why? Because of verse 10. There is none righteous. There is none who are naturally inclined to righteousness. And I'm not going to say I've got it all figured out as I listen to people who've got all kinds of problems in their life think they do. They think they have full understanding on the situation. But you know, if I have an accurate view of myself, I'm never going to feel that way because of verse 11. 
There is none who understands. Not fully. And when I've got proposals to the solution and other people don't necessarily agree, maybe in my marriage or maybe at work, and I say, but this is the best. This is what's good. Not necessarily if I keep an eye on myself. And you know why? Because of verse 12. There's none who do good. See, what I often call good in my life, good from my perspective, is oftentimes selfish and inclined towards selfishness. And so I see all that, and when I know that about me, then I approach life differently than the average guy out there. I approach life saying, I need help. Just like there are a lot of people in Arkansas who need help. They need somebody to offer them that new beginning that Bill was talking about when the Graham Crusade comes. But like you, and like many of you, I've reached out for help. And I've reached out for, for help to God. I've asked Him to help me. And He's come willing to help me. And so now I'm a Christian. And I've got that new beginning. But here's what I want to address here this evening. But you know, there are still things that haven't changed. And I can't figure out why. Now is that true of you? Are there areas in your life that still have not changed? You've asked God to help you change them. You've approached Him on those issues. You've prayed about it. But those things continue to plague you and haunt you. There are flaws in your character. There are habits that you can't overcome. You'd like to quit overeating, but you just don't. You'd like to quit overdrinking, but you don't. You'd like to curb your gossipy tongue, but you can't. You'd like to give up your anger, but it doesn't go away. You'd like to quit thinking lustfully, but you don't seem to get victory in that area. We all have things like that that haunt us. And many times, we end up, as so many Christians do, living this kind of Christian life. It's found in Romans chapter 7. This is many times the picture, the caricature of the average Christian in America today. Look at verse 15. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Have you been there? Why have you been there? Because there's something about us that still hasn't been overcome, even as we embrace the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and salvation. Look at verse 16. But I do the very thing I do not wish to do, Yet I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. Have you been there? Right in the midst of a sin? Right in the midst of the participation of it? In the action of it? And yet there's a person inside you, a redeemed person, that's saying, I don't like this. Why am I here? I wish I, hadn't, I, wish I couldn't give in to this. I wish I was different. Have you been there? Verse 17, So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. That's what Paul wanted us to know back in chapter 3. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am not doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. Why can't I change? Boy, that's such a good question for the Christian community. 
I belong to the church. I'm in a community group. I do some service. I pray and I read my Bible every once in a while. But still I don't change. Why? Why can't I get victory in these areas? Tonight, I'm going to begin to address that with some general comments. And then in the messages to follow, I'm going to add some real specifics for change. But tonight, we're just going to make this, in a sense, a lengthy, lengthy introduction. We're not going to get closure, but we are going to get some general observations. And I want to start by having you look at your outline, because on there, it mentions some superficial quick fixes. You know, when you want to change... The temptation is, is to get the quick fix because we live in a quick fix society. And I want to list some quick fixes that people give. There are all kinds of prophets out there who will peddle to you a path of instantaneous change. Some of them do it because they're hucksters. And they don't really believe it, but they can make money by it. I think most of the people are probably real sincere. They want to change just as bad as you do. And they think these things, if you just believe them enough, it'll happen. But my feeling is, and my observation after being a Christian and studying the Scriptures for a number of years is, is that most of the claims for the quick fix are as about as reliable as some of those diet ads you see in women's magazines. Have you seen those? Elizabeth was sharing with me in the Seventeen magazine this picture of this had this beautiful woman there and it was making all these claims if you could just send in and get whatever this thing was, whether it was a pill or whatever it was. But I mean, it would for these teenagers, it would slim them down, it would shape them up in the right places, it would clear their face, it would brighten their smile and probably get them a few dates on the side as well. You know, All they have to do is follow this quick fix formula. And you know what's sad? There'll be thousands of people who will try it. They'll actually think that works. Hoping against hope, like so many who are weary with going to God again and again and again, confessing their sins, when they would like to go to God in praise for the change that's come over their life. But against hope, they'll, they'll go after the quick fix in order to be changed, but it won't work. So let me give you three quick fixes I see that are common today. And each one of these, by the way, has a measure of truth. In fact, even mentioning them in some respects, I'm going to sound a little irreverent, and I'm exaggerating these because I think in many ways they are exaggerated in order to hook you and say, hey, this will work, but it doesn't. The first is just believe. Just believe. We've got all kinds of prophets who say, if you'll just believe hard enough, deep enough, faithful enough, your life, your marriage, your money, everything will change. Just believe. Name it and claim it. It's yours. God has given it to you. And people flood in to places to listen to these people, whip them up into a frenzy, and they think if they just believe hard enough, it will be theirs. It is so easy to invoke faith. Just believe. Because faith is in fact central to the Christian life. But let's also recognize that sometimes the line between faith and stupidity is a very narrow one. And, and, and it can get to the absurd and the ridiculous. I remember a number of years ago when I was out in Arizona, I was by a pool and I struck up a conversation with a lady there. And as we began to act, uh, interact over a mutual friend, 
And as she told me she was a Christian, she was talking about how all these changes were, about to come, were coming about in her life. And she said, you know, you just got to believe. You just, you just got to, to go out and believe it can be done, and it'll be done. Just believe. And as we were talking, she noticed that I had several scars on my chest. And she said, what are those scars on your chest? And I said, well, that's where, uh, for some unknown reason, my lung has collapsed a number of times. In fact, the last time it collapsed, I was jumping into a swimming pool and just exploded. And I had to have surgery there. And she said, you know, if you'll just believe, you can jump in that pool. Now, which side of the line am I on? See, see that, that's the point. It's kind of the quick fix. But you know, that can work both ways. In fact, it did for, even for her that evening, because as we finished and we were walking away, her two kids called out from the swimming pool and said, Mom, come on, come on in and swim. Come on, Mom. And she said, Kids, I can't come down that deep end. You know I can't swim. And I turned around and I said, Just believe. <laughs> you know, for us as Christians, to change, to change does require faith. I don't want to minimize that. But faith alone, in many cases, for real change, is not fully adequate. Secondly, experience it. This is a quick fix, and we've all heard this, even in our own church. I went to a seminar, I went to a retreat, I went to a study, I went to this, I saw this film, and my life is changed. Have you heard that before? Now, no doubt, there was some exhilaration and some feelings, but any person who really wanted to draw up close would want to look at that person's life about six months later to see if, in fact, there was any real change. Now, you know that burst our bubble, even in mentioning that, doesn't it? Because many of us have been to, to meetings, whether church services or seminars or whatever they might be, and when we walked out, we knew we were going to be different, didn't we? And yet in many cases, six months later, we were no different at all. There was no real change. Now I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't go to a seminar or retreat or anything like this. But what I am saying is we need to be honest with ourselves. And admit that experience, though exhilarating and energizing, and in many cases enlightening, will not in and of itself cause real change. And yet we have people flooding into churches, churches that are experientially oriented, and people come there thinking, if I just get high enough, I am going to change. Is that the way of change that Jesus offered? I don't think it is. And then there's the quick fix called right thinking. And I, again, I want to be careful and not irreverent here. Because Bible study and knowing the Scriptures is important. It is part of the process of change, but only a part. But some people have said it's not just a part, it is change. It's the full change. And they've come to believe that knowing biblical information is synonymous with transformation. And I used to think that. But as I've watched over the years, my conclusion is, it's not. It's not. Some have rightly called this head trip Christianity. It's where you sit out in an audience or in a study or work with other people and you mentally embrace good doctrine 
It makes sense to you. You're amazed, awed at the power of its logic. You're thrilled with the genius of its wisdom, oftentimes powerfully illustrated by orators or preachers who bring in real life experiences to buttress the fact that these truths are right. And you sit there and you move into that world in your seat and you say, I can see it and I can feel it. I feel changed. It's right. But then you walk out and three days later, you're no different. And yet you've got all this information. You can quote all kinds of systematic theology and verses. But Christianity is not right thinking. It's right living. And that requires a number of other disciplines to be employed if there is to be real change. You see, somewhere in headship Christianity, it's kind of like emotional Christianity. You're thinking, if I can just get that insight, I don't know where it is, it's almost mythological, but if I could just get that one key insight, then I would automatically change. Just like the other person on the other side, if I could just get this one emotion, I'd automatically change. But it never comes. And so we stay religious. Oh, we keep having another Bible study. We keep attending another seminar. But we stay unchanged. Religious, but unchanged. You might just write this down. Quick fixes will rarely change you. Quick fixes will rarely change you. Not really. Not for the long haul. Now there's some deeper perspectives on our failures as well. It's not just the quick fix. But there's some other things underlying some of the facts of our changelessness. And I want to give three of those to you as well. Some of us don't change because we often have a stunted view of salvation. And when I say that, what I mean is a view of salvation that emphasizes only the forgiveness of Christ to the exclusion of all else. Now that's, what, that's the aspect of salvation that will be presented so eloquently by Billy Graham. But did you know that that's not all of salvation? That's a part of salvation. But many of us have grown up in churches where we've heard the cross of Christ, as beautiful as that is, so long and so often that we think the death of Christ and the forgiveness of sin is salvation. And it's not. Theologically, we call salvation because of the death of Christ, justification. But if you're a theologian, you also know that there are two other major components of salvation. They're called sanctification and glorification. Sanctification being the, the, the life that we live. Glorification, our ultimate destiny with Christ. And you know, what, you know how I can simply put those two aspects in one word? It's the word change. Justification, forgiveness, sanctification and glorification, change. And yet many Christians don't have any understanding that those two aspects of salvation are just as important as justification. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And by the way, when you turn to Romans 5, just by way of context, you are in the chapter that the Apostle Paul in this great logical argument of the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, he presents justification. 
But now listen, in chapters 6, 7, and 8, three chapters as opposed to this one, He presents sanctification. The other major aspect, and how to change. But He mentions in verse 10 this statement, and I want you to notice it. It's in verse 10 of chapter 5. He says, For if while we were enemies, we will reconcile to God through the death of His Son. Now that's justification. That's this cross that you find almost in every church. In the center point of the church. Welcoming people. If we were reconciled to God through His death, and these are the two words I want you to circle, much more. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Much more having been reconciled. That's over and done with if you're a Christian. Much more we shall be, what is the word there? Saved by His life. Have you ever heard a sermon calling for salvation based on the life of Christ? See, we always hear about the death of Christ. Being saved, that is, forgiven by believing in His death. But here, in Romans 5.10, it says, much more is the salvation that comes through the life of Christ. Change. Being different. Conquering. You know, there are so many of us who have heard the justification aspect only, but here's the conclusion we come to, and it's plagued us in our quest for change. We've come to the conclusion, because we've heard it so much, that Jesus Christ died for my sin, and He did, and I'm not belittling that in the least. He died for my sin, my sins are forgiven, I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm secure in my eternal destiny, and then there's nothing else. Though Romans 5.10 says there's much more. And you know what we do? Then we go out and we live the same old lifestyle we lived before we became a Christian. Knowing that with all the muck in it, we're forgiven and we're assured of an eternal destiny. So see, we don't have to change in that theology. We can just stay as we are and continue to sin, as Paul says over in verse Chapter one, I mean, verse one of chapter six. We can continue to sin so that grace might abound. But when Paul makes that statement, he makes it: Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? And the answer in verse two is: May it never be. There's a whole new life out there. And when Jesus Christ called people to follow Him, He didn't call them just to believe in His death. He called them to embrace His lifestyle so that salvation comes by faith alone. But let me tell you, not sanctification. Sanctification is not just by faith alone. It requires faith, but it also requires your involvement and your commitment and your discipline and your diligence and your perseverance and the practice of spiritual disciplines that the Scripture sets forth in order to be changed. It's not by faith alone. And in the coming weeks, we'll show you how God rewards you for your involvement. But now look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. He says, Have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. But he says, on the other hand, discipline yourself. And why should you discipline yourself? 
for the purpose of godliness. And that implies two things. Number one, I'm not godly. That is, I'm not different in the members of my body. I might be in the center point of my heart. But to become godly, I've got to discipline myself. And then he gives a comparison in verse 8. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. Now let me tell you, you don't become a great jogger, a great marathoner, by sitting listening to lectures on jogging, do you? By getting right thinking about jogging. You don't get it by going to kind of an emotional awards banquet for joggers and getting whipped up where you can say, I can do that too. You get it by disciplining yourself, by eating right, by, by practicing the right training techniques that you have struggled to master so you can get your steps and your timing down perfect and you go over it and you practice and you practice and you practice so that when you go out into the real race of life, you can do what needs to be done. That's what he's telling Timothy here. Timothy, you've got to practice. You've got to discipline yourself. Not bodily discipline, but you need to apply some of those same understandings for godliness. Because godliness is far more profitable. Look at verse 8. Than just bodily discipline. It's profitable for all things since it holds promise not only in the present life, but this is what the good news is, it also is going to be rewarded in the life that is to come. And you know when he talks to Timothy about that? He's talking about salvation. Change. How do I know that? Look at verse 16 as he ends the chapter. He says, Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teachings. Persevere. That's not faith alone. That's not just believe. That's not get experience. That's work. Persevere in these things. For as you do, you will ensure what? <laughs> I thought Timothy was saved. Well, certainly he's saved. He's justified. But Timothy's not fully sanctified. He's not fully changed. But see, he says, as you persevere, you will ensure, and if I could use the word change, you will ensure change both for yourself and for those who hear you. You have to have a full view of salvation, not a stunted view. And if you have a stunted view, it's going to undercut your ability to change. Secondly, some of us don't change because we have often not really figured out what it is that drives us every day. Do you know what drives you in life? Do you know what you want out of life, really? You know, I talked to a guy who was running for a political office, and he had all these consultants that he met with to tell him how he comes across with people. Because oftentimes, it's real interesting, oftentimes people who are around you, I mean, close people who are close to you, they can see what really drives you much better than you can see what drives you. They, they, they have, in many cases, a better conclusion on who you are than you do. Could it be, and I only suggest that, that one of the obstacles, major obstacles of our lack of change is that we simply have not been honest with ourselves when it comes to what we really want out of life? That we're saying one thing as a Christian about that we want to be right with God and all those kind of things, but our pursuits and our priorities reveal a whole different agenda totally. In fact, so much so that if I walked up to a good friend and said, hey, what do you think drives me? He may say something I don't even want to hear. 
And I may be over there not liking my situation saying, but I want to be this. And Charlie over there says, no you don't. You don't give any time to it. You don't give any effort to it. You don't study it. You don't pursue it. You're out chasing this. That's what you really want. But we're not honest. Just like Pete Rose isn't honest. See, we deceive ourselves. We go to church and say, this is what we want. But in order not to have the pain of our hypocrisy, we just submerge what our real agenda is into the subconscious. And usually we have to have a counselor pull it out. Because we can't change and we've messed up our life. That's why when alcoholics go to Alcoholic Anonymous, and so many have been helped through that organization, you know one of the things that an alcoholic has to agree to in their 12 points of change? They have to say, I have made a searching and fearless inventory of myself. No more games. See, no more playing around. No more dishonesty. I've made a fearless inventory and this is who I am. That's what we need to do oftentimes. James 1.8 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He has two different agendas. And oftentimes we want Christ, the death of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, but we don't want the life of Christ because that would change our agenda. That would muddy our priorities. That would, that would be radical. And so therefore we have instability and yet we have problems because of that instability Then we're not different. And even when we want to change, we can't change because we're not sure what really drives us. A third reason we don't change is because we are not realistic about what it takes to change. Or how long? Now I'm going to talk in the next few weeks about what it takes. But let me just address here how long. Sometimes the grace of God will be so powerful, and God's grace is powerful, and move into a person's life, and things they've struggled with, even as they become a Christian, will just automatically disappear. But now you mark this well. Those people are the exception. Unfortunately, we take those people whose lives instantaneously change to the praise of God, and we move them up to the platform and hold them up as if they are the rule and not the exception. And then you sit in your seat and feel guilty because you're going back to God again for the 415th time to ask forgiveness for something that you hate doing, but you can't stop. And you think you're weird. What I want you to know is in most cases, these people are exceptions. And change, real change, the kind of change where it becomes automatic, the kind of change where it's no longer a have to, but a want to with delicious desires around it, takes time. And it's often hard. That's because this body that we inhabit is inhabited itself by sin. Remember what Paul said in Romans 7? I find in the principle that evil is in me. That means this body is inclined towards evil and it's had a lot of input over thousands of years to make it that way. From generation to generation, these evil habits have been passed down even through my parents and then deposited in me. And not only that, I've got a world that emotionally keeps fueling those inclinations and even telling me they're right and go express them and do what you want. And yet they don't feel right. 
And they finally end up messing up my life, as so many have been messed up. And yet they're so powerful and so hard to change. In C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, some of you have read those, but it's about a demon who's trying to keep people from coming to Christ. But he has this younger demon who's allowed his earthling to find Jesus. And he writes to him, and as he balls him out for this conversion, he also then adds, but there is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after coming to Christ. All the habits of this person, both mentally and physically, are in our favor. And they are. When Jesus Christ entered your life, when you reached up and embraced Him, you were forgiven of all your sins. He put His residence in you. But He put only a beachhead in the midst of evil. And what He's trying to do is work that life out. And it takes time. And it takes effort. And it takes your cooperation. And it takes the grace of God. But oftentimes we're unrealistic in that regard. So let's say I'm having a problem telling the truth. Let's say I exaggerate. Let's say I grew up in a home where I heard my mom and dad exaggerate and tell lies for their own convenience, to puff out their own pride. And that used to get me in trouble, but now I've become a Christian. And now that I've become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, and as I read the Word, they begin to convict me that God hates a lying tongue. And I don't want to lie. But I find myself in these situations where somebody says something and somebody counters it and then just kind of automatically, without even thinking, I just pop out some exaggeration, some untruth to make me look good in the midst of the conversation. And even as I say it, I go, why did I do that? And I go away and I say, God help me. And then I go back and I find myself continuing to do that. And I don't change. That happens on a number of issues. And I'm sure there is one that's probably standing out in your mind even as I speak. Why do I automatically do those things and why can't I change? Well, I'm going to address some specifics in three weeks, but I want to give you now, in just a summation form, the general observations that I've just made in the last 30 minutes. And you might just review these with me. First of all, as I sit there and, and struggle and mumble over the fact that I can't get a grip on my truthfulness... <laughs> I need to realize, first of all, that that's just part of me, inherited from my forefathers. That's the sin nature I have. It's in me. And it's powerful. Second thing I need to know is there will be no quick fix. At least not generally. If God does that, praise Him. But there will probably be no quick fix in rooting out that ingrained habit pattern over the centuries. Because you know the God of this world is the Father of life. Thirdly, changing this area of my life is important to God. It's not secondary to the salvation that came on the cross. It is equal to that salvation. Yea, it is part of that salvation. Because me being changed is part of the salvation of Christ. And it's extremely important that I be changed in my tongue. Fourthly, this part of God's salvation, that is, sanctification, will not occur by faith alone. It will require a cooperation, a cooperation between God's efforts and my efforts. I can't change this area without God. 
Because His grace has to be there to get me over the hump and really be changed. On the other hand, He won't change this area of my life without my involvement. Fifthly, I must be honest with myself. As I sit there and lie and automatically and spontaneously exaggerate, I've got to ask myself, do I really want this change? How bad do I want it? Or would I rather sit back and when people start boasting and stuff, just be me? Would I feel good about myself just being me? Ordinary me? See, dishonesty here will undercut all my efforts for change. I will not really work at it if I really don't want it. And on the other hand, God discerning my double-mindedness, as it says in James 1, if He sees that I'm double-minded, He promises in James 1 that you shouldn't expect any effort from Him. He said, let not the double-minded man expect anything from the Lord. No power. No grace. Nothing. And then finally, real change will take time even when I want it. Because the evil habits of my life are that ingrained. And it will take time to make these new habits of godliness work. I'll have to follow some disciplines. I'll have to follow, in particular, the life of Christ. And yet, that was the call that He gave. Follow Me! And He was alive. And there will be times when I'll regress but if I persevere, which is a biblical term all the way through the New Testament, I will ultimately prevail and it will taste sweet. Because I'll be that for the first time. Now if that sounds hard, it is. It really is. But now let me say one other thing. Did you know something? Ungodliness is hard too. Solomon said in Proverbs 13.15, the way of the transgressor is hard. Life is hard. Any adult will tell any child, life is tough. You can't escape that. You can't go bury yourself somewhere. Life is going to be hard. Now, the choice that you have is which hard do you want? If you take the heart of ungodliness, oh, it'll taste sweet in the beginning, but it ultimately leads to despair. And we have some people here despairing tonight. Bondage. And there are plenty of people in bondage because of their ingrained habits that they practiced again and again. Ruin. There are a lot of people in ruin. On the other case, the hardness of godliness, the disciplines there, ultimately lead to what? I can tell you some of those because I've experienced. Joy. Freedom. Peace. Self-control. Dignity. Now those are sweet but they're hard to buy. And anyone who tells you there's a quick fix, they're not telling you the Gospel at that point. In time, every Christian is going to have one or two options. He will either really change. This is for everyone here. You will either really change and what you sing about and say, you'll feel because it's you. And people will even notice it's you. Or, like so many, you will fake change. You will use Christian words. You will go to a Christian church. You'll act like a Christian in certain circles. But inside will be emptiness and maybe even torment 
because there's not been real change take place. Those are our options. So let's conclude with a starting place for change. And this will not be hard. It won't take you any time hardly, but I think it will be worth it when we come back in three weeks and begin to address some specifics. And it's this. And I'm going to do this for my life, but I want you to pick out one thing in your life that you would really like to change that hasn't. You've given a lot of effort to it, but it hasn't changed. And then I want you to journal in some secret place that nobody else can see and be honest now what you've really done, how much effort you've really given to try to change that area. How much time you've spent on it. And take a look at it and evaluate it and say, could I play a violin if I gave it this much effort? Could I jog six miles if I gave it that much effort? Could I read a foreign language if I gave it that much effort? Be honest. And then I want you to take some of the things that I've said tonight and just glean what insights you can and see what new insights you might come up with. And then next time when I preach, I'll set forth some specific spiritual disciplines that Jesus' life taught us and that are necessary if we're to truly change. Well, there you have it. Let's pray together. Lord, if nothing else, I'm just reminded again tonight of how important it is to You that You save us not from our sins, but from sinning. That that is part and parcel of Your grand plan of salvation. And that it is important to You. You ache for the way we use our eyes and our tongue and our feet and our hands and what we say to others and how we respond. Those things are important to You because they express the salvation that Your Son not only died for, but lived for. And I would pray that You would help me to help this body of believers to see honestly and clearly some of the things that are necessary if we are truly to be like Christ. That calling is not impossible. In fact, that calling was made possible by Jesus Himself. Help us, Father, in that. And I make this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.